Welcome to the Victorian Aboriginal News Referendum 23 Tapes podcast. I'm your host, Charles Parkiner. Victorian Aboriginal News acknowledges and pays respect to traditional owners and custodians across Australia. We acknowledge the elders who have gone before, those who currently lead their communities and those who will follow in years and generations to come. Today's guest on the Referendum 2023 Tapes podcast is Jason Mifsud, a highly active member of the Kidai, Peak and Jabwarang people of the Gunajamara Nation in southwest Victoria. He's currently the head of First Nations Affairs and Enterprise at Wes Farmers, runs his own consulting company and, among many other roles, has previously been a senior advisor on Indigenous and Multicultural Affairs for the AFL. Jason, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Charles. Jason, you position yourself as a cautious yes when it comes to the referendum and the proposed voice to Parliament. Explain what it is to be a cautious yes and what it is you're cautious about. Mm, Great question. So I am a cautious yes. I think I'm an optimist. I believe that you know, our people not only need a seat at the table but a share of the table and clearly the current reform is, you know, asking Australians to to give us that right and Mm. for me it is a right that we deserve and, you know, that call is generations old now so it's not a new call by any stretch of the imagination. However, you know, we, we, you know, we should be cautious around what it will inevitably look and feel like um, by way of how the legislation will get designed and who will inform that design, you know, um, if we are successful on October 14. Right. And I just think there are some points of clarity that, you know, personally I would like, and that is around the voice being either selected or elected. And I know for some people that's semantics, but for me, given that I come from a democratic community and the right for our people to vote for our people, to pick our own team, is a very important right. So that hasn't clearly been spelled out to me, and despite sort of seeking some confirmation on that, I, there's some cute talk that happens around it, and I appreciate some of the sensitivities around the legislative design will sort of determine some of those particular things, but I just think there are some markers that... But surely that's going to have to be a bit of a hybrid model because obviously in Victoria we already have an, an Aboriginal electoral role and it's fairly democratic in that sort of process as it has been with the First People's Assembly of Victoria. In other remote areas it may not be practical to have that. So could you see a hybrid model being implemented and even practical? Absolutely, and we should be told that. Uh, that's my point around right. just clarity. So. We could disagree what it is, but we should be told what the the principles behind that would be. Now, you know, I would argue quite strongly and having been a part of the treaty process here in Victoria, as you know, from a design point of view and so Mm. forth, you know, any initial voice process should lift up the existing structures that, you know, we have across the country. So whether it's the Northern Land Council get to elect their representative, whether it's the you know, the Cape York Institute get to elect their representative group, whether it's the Yaru and the Kimberley. Like, there is, there is enough coverage, as imperfect as it might be, for me to believe that we should have some more clarity than we currently do. So, for me, it's a, it is a point of clarity and a point of contention, but not strong enough to be an advocate against, you know, the success of the voice. I've got a, you know, I think, you know, one of the values of our people is around 
uh, sustainability. And, you know, if you apply the seven-generation rule, it'll be a bit rough early, it'll be a bit murky early, you know, it'll take us the good part of a decade to iron out all those particular creases. So I'm comfortable to have a longer-term view on the benefit of those particular decisions, but I just think... I think we deserve to have a little bit more clarity than we do. But as I said, that's, you know, I'm an in-the-tent person. You know, we need to continually advocate to get more people in the tent. But I I do think we deserve to have a little bit more information than we've got, just around some of those fundamental things, notwithstanding the legislation will sort of play out in its own sort of time. But government's argument, though, is that the legislative process is going to take place if the yes vote does get up. And as we know, within the legislative process in this country, really everyone has a say or a potential say. It's got to go through the lower house, it's got to go through the upper house, it's got to go through public hearings, call on expert witnesses. Don't you believe that that process could be rigorous enough? Well, what I know is once government starts to design legislation for our community, you know, we we might be asking for an apple, but we inevitably get the pineapple. So (laughs) I don't have a lot of faith in that process just based on history. Sure. And this goes to my... You know, my other point around, you know, is the existing referendum council going to be a key advisor to that legislative process? Now, if it is, just tell us. That's fine. I mm. mean, once again, we could disagree with it. We could disagree who's on it. But I think they're just points of clarity that give people confidence in regards to, you know, getting to October 14 with, a you know, with, with you know, chins up and our chests out knowing that we absolutely clear on what the, you know, the phase two, three and four might look and feel like. And of course, there'll be some variance within that because of, to your point, some of those, you know, political sort of structures that typically we'll have to work through. So, so no, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence given what history has said around legislative design for our communities. However, once again, that doesn't necessarily push me out of the tent. I'm still in. But I think for a lot of people who are thinking about this deeply, they're important markers that might just build some confidence. So it might get some soft no's across to some soft yeses. Yeah. Or it might get some soft yeses to hard yeses and then help, you know, that helps sort of mobilise people over the next three weeks. Well, you are bringing together an element of pessimism when it comes to defining legislation and optimism because you've actually said, well, you are this cautious yes. What's actually pushed you on the side of, well, at least I know what I'm going to be voting on the 14th of October? Well, you know, there's no other pathway, right, that's on the table. Sure. so, you know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. So, you know, current, the, the status quo is just, you know, it's just not acceptable. And for sure there's the, you know, there's the cute talk around we'll go back to a referendum and just recognise our mob in the Constitution. Oh, you know, yes. that, that's nice to hear, but it's not going to be the substantive and structural reform that our community needs over a couple of generations. So in the absence of any other alternative, you know, structural or substantive, you know, reform... You know, let's let's sort of secure our rights and our position on October 14, and then you know, on to- October 15 and onwards, we sort of get back to work and you know make the best of that with what we can, and then you know, future generations will build upon that as we are doing on the back of you know previous generations. So, I'm not overly concerned with it being perfect. Uh, I think secure our rights, secure our rights, right to be in the constitution, and our right to have a an enshrined voice, mm. you know, and then I think we get back to work and make that uh, as effective and as efficient as we can, you know, in, 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 
you know, over the next decade or two. Now, so you, that, that's where my optimism comes from, but I'm pragmatic and, you know, I've walked around this type of thing and often enough to know that there'll be some blind spots um, that we'll have to navigate. But well, that's what I want to address now because you you have mentioned now a couple of times this almost this decade before if we do get a, over the line on, on October the 14th and we can get some effective legislation in, what do you think would be the key hurdles uh, facing the construct of an effective voice to parliament if we do get it over the line on the 14th? Well, this is where I think as a, you know, as a community, as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, and this is where it's incumbent upon us, you know. So we will need to work out what are the qualities and the characteristics and the processes that we want to fight hard to get into that legislation to ensure that, you know, the right representation is being elected onto that, onto that voice. Mm. Now, that's a hard conversation. It's a complex conversation. It just takes time. So we should be realistic about that. So for me, you know, when I say a decade, Charles, what we need to do is have a generation of our community believe being on that voice can make a substantive change. So, you know, the quality of, you know, those elected representatives, the characteristics of those representatives and the work program that that sort of voice gets to, you know, focus on, I think it will take a good part of a decade for, for the majority of our community to have trust and confidence in that whole process. So I'm, I can live with that, you know, from that point of view. Mm. And then inevitably it will take a decade for any policy change to be, you know, measurable in the areas that, you know, are tangible and material for our community. So, you know, whether that is in employment, whether that is in, you know, the growth of the Aboriginal business community, whether that is in, you know, some of the more intractable issues that remote Australia, you know, remote communities have to be contending with. So, you know, what does success look like over, the, over that 10-year period? Is it's trust and confidence from the majority of our people that the voice is legitimate, it's authentic, and it's focusing on the right things? And, of course, that looks and feels different for every region, given the, you know, the challenges are somewhat different but not dissimilar in each region. This is actually very similar to some conversations that you and I had a number of years ago in the lead-up to the election of the First People's Assembly, Victoria. You know, mm. finding the right people, getting the ground, uh, the ground rules sort of set up right, establishing trust within the community, identifying the key issues. Admittedly, though, the First People's Assembly of Victoria has done significantly more in a shorter period of time than we may be looking at with a voice. But are there lessons that you believe could be learnt in the implementation of a voice from the First People's Assembly of Victoria because it is quite a success story. It's an enormously successful story, enormously. And, and everybody involved in the process, whether you know, regardless whether you're on the front, middle or the back of the bus, everybody that's been on the bus should have enormous pride on what we've got done. Mm. And, yeah, of course, it would be, you know, not everybody agrees with it and all of those particular things. But, you know, the, what, so what are the lessons learned? The lessons learned, if you, you've got to open the bowling right, to start the game, somebody's got to bounce the ball. So, sure. so the ground being a bit uneven, we're not quite sure who the umpires are, which players are going to put on the team. All of those things have to get worked through. But what we know in the second election cycle versus the first is there were more people enrolled to vote, more people participated in the electoral process, and there was a new group of you know community members who nominated to actually run in those election processes. So you'd have to say from that point of view, that's a marker of success. Mm. 
And that's a that's a sign that confidence has been built through that first election, you know, that first assembly cycle. So that's a big tick in my view. You know, the framework was designed, the self-determination fund was established and the treaty authority was stood up and now, you know, that election process, you know, that appointment process is sort of running its course at this point in time. So so they're all clear mar- markers of success. The markers of success for the next or for the current assembly cycle here in Victoria are going to look and feel differently because it's a different phase. So, But what can so we the- learn from the assembly's successes and relate those to the formation of the voice? Well, you've got to know what success looks like in the, you know, so in any, in any election cycle, at the end of your term, how do you know whether you've been effective in your job. So that'll look differently for The Voice, given it's a different beast to, you know, the Victorian Treaty Assembly. So it'll look differently and it'll feel differently. So that's what The Voice early days needs to work out, in my view, in terms of what success will look like. So the lessons learned, it takes time, um, but you've got to maintain a long-term vision around what the benefit of these structures are designed to achieve. And that's why I think, you know, having a, a generational or intergenerational view on what the voice will do is important. So for me, that's the lesson learned. You've got to be focused on getting the work done on any given day, week or month or year, but you've also got to maintain an eye on, you know, the, the longer term change. Because we know in our communities, it's a, it's it, it's it's the long game we need to play around the changes that have to get made. And then of course the, of course the voice has then got to build confidence within the parliamentary system that it's protecting and fighting for the rights of our people, but it's doing it in a pragmatic way that builds confidence in that um, the parliamentary system. And that's why I think some of the noise at the moment around what The Voice may or may not focus on, you know, is quite distracting from the real issues that the majority of our communities would be talking about, and that is, you know, better wellbeing programs in our community, better yeah. access to health and education, proper housing infrastructure... So all of those sort of, you know, life and lifestyle things are, for me, the most important things for The Voice to be focusing on. But if it comes out early and focuses on other issues, I think it loses confidence within our own community, let alone the parliamentary system. So do you think then it needs to address some of these deficit model factors in order to gain sort of credibility? Well, if you sort of ask me, I think the other way I, uh, you know, think about the question, Charles, is do we want our people to li- not only live longer but live health- healthier and happier? That, to me, is what uh, this conversation is all about. So if that's not the intergenerational marker that we're trying to aim for, I'm not sure what the current fight is would be worth it. But that's just my personal view, you know. So, you know, in 2050 or 2060... If our people, the markers of our health and, and happiness haven't lifted as a collective community, not just, you know, pockets of our communities, for me, if that's not what our long-term ambition is as an Aboriginal Torres on a community, I reckon the, the rest of it's just, you know, we're just sort of playing in the sand pit because that's how we've been conditioned. You're a man who doesn't hold back from really getting into the scrum. We'll just continue on with the sporting analogies that you've been spattering in there. You've demonstrated that time and time again over the years. Do you see that you would throw your hat in the ring, not necessarily for a seat on one of the local voices, but at least as someone involved in forming that legislation and providing expert advice to that legislation, should the yes vote get up? Well, I'd never say never. You know, and, and they're privileged positions, right? So I'm not too worried about the statue. I think, you know, we're, it's like 
And I think the majority of our people are in a very similar position, and that is, you know, making that intergenerational change that more of our community need than less. That, that's that's what this is all about. So, you know, manage our ego, stay focused on the long-term goal. You know, the number one rule of leadership is to have more people come with you than less, and the, the type of role that you're talking about and the role of the voice will be complex because it'll be your own building and maintaining confidence amongst our own community, but also building trust and confidence within the, the political framework of the parliament. So they're not easy roles. Um, they do require, you know, a particular skill set. Yeah. And there'll be some that'll be more amenable to that, you know, in the first cycle than the second. But what I what I get really excited about is, you know, the 10-year-old Aboriginal kid out in any part of this country at the moment. Yeah will grow up knowing that at some stage they'll have the opportunity to be a participant in that process and not only have a seat but a share of that table. And so when you talk about hope and optimism and opportunity, you know, they're the things that I just go back to in terms of first principles and, you know, any young person, let alone our young people, deserve to have that chance to see themselves participating in that process, not only through elected positions within the mainstream political parties, but, you know, a vehicle like the Voice to Parliament is advocating for. Jason Mifsud, thanks so much indeed for coming onto the podcast. Thanks, Charles. For a full transcript of this interview, visit the Victorian Aboriginal News website at vicaboriginalnews.com.au. Until our next episode, stay safe and stay informed. <laughs>